0: According to Frontline, professors from the University of Chicago and the University of Minnesota say that up to 44% of financial advisors found guilty of misconduct are back to work within a year. I'm Leah Levy, co-founder of Nanato Media, and this is In Camera Podcast, where we have already bookmarked brokercheck.com. podcast private legal marketing conversations grace welcome back how are you today how are you i'm good leo i'm doing great thank you so much for asking grace and so today grace we're back here for a very interesting conversation a very unique one a topic that we haven't really talked a lot here in the podcast before so i'm really excited about it and without further ado i'll let you go ahead and do your amazing intro
1: Fantastic. So we do have a very cool guest today. And uh, like Liel said, it's very unusual topic. So I'm just going to go right into it. Today, we are joined by attorney David Mayer for a conversation on investment fraud. David is the managing principal of Mayer Wilson, a national law firm he founded to represent investment fraud victims in their fight against deceptive brokers. Mayor Wilson is one of the nation's leading investment fraud firms, recovering millions of dollars for clients throughout the last 20 years. David is currently the president of two bar associations, the Public Investors Advocate Bar Association and the Ohio Association for Justice. Most recently, David published the best-selling book, The Investor Protector, where he shares how he has helped his clients regain their savings and peace of mind, and what you can do to protect yourself david welcome to in camera podcast
0: david welcome to in camera podcast congratulations on your new book the
2: investor protector and for becoming a bestseller how does it feel it's great Uh, it happened a lot quicker than i'd even hoped uh but i'm i was happy to learn that and really excited about the book and the attention it's getting and And uh, we can get into a little bit later, but I think I've already uh, helped at least one person who read the book even before it came out and made some big decisions based on what they read in the book. So it's it's very rewarding.
0: Wow, that's amazing. That's really, really amazing. Fast Impact book. So let's start
2: with where is this podcast finding you? Uh, Well, actually, right now I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we have several offices around the country. We represent investors nationwide, But right now, I'm sitting in our offices in Columbus, Ohio.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us, David. And you've just shared with us you have offices all over the nation. Tell us a little bit more. Let's start from backtrack here a little bit, and let's let's hear a little bit about your journey in the in, in the in the legal world. Where did it start? How do you got to where you are right now?
2: Sure. I have what I think is probably a non-traditional uh, track into the practice of law, although my father, Uh, is a uh, uh, plaintiff's trial lawyer. Uh, He actually just retired uh, about uh, last year, and he's 89 years old. So he was a plaintiff's trial lawyer for 65 years uh, in the state of West Virginia, which is where I grew up. But I never really uh, thought as a little kid that I'd be a a lawyer, although I did often accompany my dad to the office and to see trials as I was growing up, uh, to see the good work he did on behalf of people that really needed the help. Uh, But in, in college, I was a whitewater rafting guide, I was also a juggler. I spent some time juggling on the uh, boardwalk uh, for some extra cash. Uh, So uh, eventually I ended up going to law school after college, and I got a master's in tax. I thought I was going to be a tax lawyer, which is – uh, not as uh, it's 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 not very fun, and it it, it uh, probably doesn't sound very fun. Uh, it's not so I was fair. It's only not I was... Fair
0: for tax lawyers. The yeah, I, know. I was I having guess... a, a conversation with a um, legal PR firm, right? And we were talking about our own little project that we have here for 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 which they're helping us. And they say, "Oh, this is amazing! This is so exciting!" Most of times, we're trying to make uh, tax lawyers seem exciting. So well, I tell you, they're, it's, it's, they're, it's, they're getting it's beaten very... up, these uh, tax lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very
2: complex area, and I applaud all the tax lawyers that do great work Uh, because it's a very sophisticated area of the law. And uh, so I got my master's in tax, and I was hired actually to be a tax lawyer. And I was digging into the tax code day and night, Uh, but about two years in. So I was a very young lawyer, and uh, and I talk about this in my book. uh, A gentleman walked in the door, uh, needed a securities lawyer, and nobody in our office did that work. He was referred to my boss, actually. And my boss turned the case down because that wasn't an area of law that we focused on. And as the gentleman was walking out of the door, I was actually walking to the copier, and I literally ran into him. And uh, I just started making conversation with him. And it turns out you know, he was just telling me about a problem he had with his stockbroker, and I was interested in it. So I asked him if he would let me just dig in a little bit. And this was the early days of the Internet. Uh, back in 1998. And I started doing a little bit of digging and I figured out, you know, what types of claims you can have against stockbrokers and where they need to be pursued. And then I met with him and he said, look, you know, David, I'd really like you to help me. I know you're young, but I've got faith in you. And, you know, I'm not the only one this is this has happened to. So I'd like you to come meet uh, some other folks. So I I drove my uh, my uh, very old car up to meet him about an hour from my office and uh, I walk in a room and there's about 150 people there. And they had all suffered the same type of, of losses as a result of a single act of a stockbroker that, a, that a happened. ended up impacting about 250 people. And to make a really long story short, and I go into this a little bit in the book, I ended up filing a class action against Prudential Securities. I was 28 years old, and the case took seven years and uh, went through multiple uh, court of appeals and remands and this, that, and the other. And we ended up with a, a jury trial in 2002. In fact, I'm looking at the verdict uh, right now above my screen. We got a $260 million verdict on behalf of the 250 retirees I represented. Uh, The verdict was against Prudential Securities. It was, at the time, and remains, the largest jury verdict in the state of Ohio. And the Court of Appeals did reduce the verdict, uh, but we still ended up recovering all of our clients' losses plus their attorney's fees. But that's the long answer of how I got into the area of investment fraud. I took that case and started my own law firm, and uh, I started representing individual investors, mostly retirees, who have suffered losses as the result of the misconduct of their financial advisor. And I've been doing that every day for uh, more than 20 years.
0: David, that's remarkable. So when we hear that you've got one of the record-breaking break, jury verdicts, that was from a case that you started at the age of 28 years old.
2: Yes, I was uh, three years out of law school. And I put together a team and I had help. Uh, but uh, we, we went up against the uh, basically the uh, endless resources of Wall Street they had more money than we did, but we had the grit, the fight, and the determination. I just was not going to let my clients down. And they were depending on me to restore their financial security that they worked their entire life for. And I mean, we were working all night. My wife was bringing a change of clothes and food to the office. Uh, when, I, when I started that trial, I had a son who was eight months old. Uh, and we tried that case for a month. We moved into a bed and breakfast. Uh, we moved out the furniture and moved in computers. That, at that time, the computers were really big. Yeah. Um, and we slept there. And the uh, the woman, the couple who ran the bed and breakfast made us uh, uh, breakfast every morning before we went to court. And uh, at night, I remembered, I don't know why I remember this, but in the freezer, they were stacked with Klondike bars, ice cream bars. Uh, and we'd stayed up all night. And I just had this memory of. You know, three in the morning, going over the next day's testimony or evidence and uh, eat, eating ice cream bars. So uh, to this day, Klondike Bars remain one of my favorites.
1: <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Uh, so the, the this case, basically, this is part of your book, and it also sounds like it, it really shaped the future of your investment you know, the way you would basically do business. Would you mind telling us just, so, I know you, you explained a lot about that particular case, but could you tell us just a little bit more about the process? Because I, I know a lot of lawyers, they they're looking for niche, right? And they're looking for specifics in practice areas that call to them, for lack of a better word. And it sounds like this was almost a calling to you. It, it, it kind of fell in your lap. And so could you tell me just a little bit more about the whole case and, and the experience that you went through doing that? I mean, Klondok bars, it, these are the stories that our people want to hear. So oh,
2: would, if you don't mind it, just giving a little more. Do you mean about how I, how I identified the practice area or more about that, that, that specific case?
1: A little bit of both, if you don't mind, actually, because yeah. they're both super interesting.
2: Right. So at that point I had been out of law school for a couple of years and I did have the benefit of a father who was a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer. And even then, and this was, you know, 25 years ago, uh, the plaintiff's practice of law was suffering. a just, there's a, a lot of pushback, tort reform, uh, more conservative courts. And my father, uh, was was just worried for his own practice and 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 for plaintiffs and injured people that the practice of law from a plaintiff personal injury standpoint was going to get more challenging and more difficult and and tougher with tort reform and and a lot of that has ended up to be true. Yeah, um, so he totally wasn't missionary. right. So he wasn't necessarily pushing me to be a plaintiff's lawyer, but I knew I want I wanted to be I wanted to have my own business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be a contingency fee lawyer, uh, but I didn't I didn't necessarily want to be an injury lawyer. Uh, So then that sort of narrowed. Well, you know, what other type of work can you do on a contingency basis? Uh, And I did a lot of research. I mean, I remember I thought I was going to be the. uh, the, uh, um, the mobile home uh, defect lawyer. In fact, I flew down uh, to Alabama as a two-year lawyer to meet with a, with a gentleman who actually wrote the book. And that was one of the reasons I ended up writing my book 25 years later. I found this guy because he was the, and I, I don't remember his name, quite frankly, but he wrote the book on mobile home defect litigation and I flew down there. And, and you know, so I did that kind of thing to just to look for types of areas of law that were, were new, they were niche. They, it wasn't a tremendous amount Of competition, Um, and so I was looking at that time for a particular case. Now, you know, just it was happenstance that that the opportunity, you know, came in for this case. But I do believe that that opportunity comes for people that open doors, right? There's a lot of opportunities that come to people that they they turn away, and you know, they're, they're too nervous or whatever it may be. They don't take the risk of actually opening that door. And I was just fortunate that opportunity came and I was looking for opportunity and I had the support of my bosses that let me do it. Um, And, you know, I I worked that case for a year before I with their blessing before I left, I took that case with me to start my own law firm. So, you know, I had a lot of things kind of come together. I tell a lot of people that I think I'm the luckiest lawyer on the planet, but I had a lot of luck. Um, that case came to the door, and I, and I, and I did have the, the wherewithal to, 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 to really grab onto that case and, and fight hard for those folks and, and, and take a lot of risk. I mean, that case took seven years. So we worked for seven years. We obviously didn't make any money until the case was over. So, uh, you know, there's just a, there a lot of things that went into it. But certainly the idea was to find a, a niche that I thought was underserved, uh, that I thought I could add value to the, to the potential clients, to the community, um, and, and then, and, and I had to start building that business before the verdict came in. So, you know, I started my law firm in 2000. We tried the case in 2002. We didn't, the case wasn't over till almost 2007. Um, so, but you know, just working hard and to focus on that niche, and that more about the case. I mean, it was these people were the most wonderful people. They worked my clients. There were 250 members of the class were primarily line workers for GTE. You know, telephone line workers that worked for 20, 30, 40 years to save up their nest egg, and they saw a significant portion of it wiped away as a result of what happened. So, you know, that was really an eye-opening experience for me. I mean, I didn't have any money at the time, so I didn't have to worry about a stockbroker or a financial advisor because I didn't have any money. So this was all new to me. Uh, the idea that a broker could do this and, and, and that the firm wouldn't step up and fix it right away. And we learned in the course of the case that Prudential Securities uh, knew what happened immediately. This, this broker uh, liquidated tens of millions of dollars of securities uh, overnight. Uh, Now, he didn't steal the money. He liquidated it into cash, and he actually had what he believed were good intentions. He thought the world was going to end. He literally thought, chicken little, the world is going to end tomorrow, so I need to protect all my clients and sell off all their stock portfolio, which he wasn't allowed to do. The the accounts required prior authorization before this gentleman, as most accounts do now, uh, required prior authorization before he could buy or sell anything, but he did it without authority. He went, went to cash for everybody. Now, look. If the market would have gone south and if, and if the world would have ended, he would have been the hero. But what actually happened, following those unauthorized trades, and again, tens of millions of dollars. He did it from a little office in Marin, Ohio. It was him and like two assistants. And this was before computers. I mean, they're filling out sell orders for tens of millions of dollars of portfolios. Um, it happened on, let's, say, let's call that day one. Well, the next day, literally the next day, the stock market started going straight up. So anyone that was in equities and anyone that was invested and diversified in a well-balanced uh, investment portfolio, their accounts would have gone up. But these folks, because they're in cash, didn't go anywhere. They stayed in cash. So what had happened the prior several months, accounts, the portfolios were going down. The market was going down. He liquidates what turned out to be the bottom. The stock market goes straight up. And here's the craziest part about the case. Not only did he commit all these unauthorized trades and, and, and somehow they, he wasn't stopped before he even did it that Prudential headquarters in New York city found out about that the next day. And they did a calculation and we, we found this calculation during the course of the case. They did a calculation because the market was going straight up. So to reverse the trades, they'd have to buy back everyone's position at a slightly higher amount. And they did the math and it was something like two or $3 million. So they could have rebought everybody's position that was improperly sold. It would have cost them two or $3 million instead of doing that. They made a conscious decision. and I mean, it was unbelievable in the depositions we took. They made the conscious decision, no, to try to save 2 or $3 million. They're going to fly a bunch of vice presidents in suits down to Marion, Ohio, a small town north of Columbus, Ohio, and, and disperse everyone into everybody's homes and try to convince them to ratify, which is a legal term, to try to get them to accept or adopt the unauthorized trade in order for Prudential to escape responsibility. Because if you commit an unauthorized trades, if you later accept it and understand what happened and just agree to it, then Prudential could escape liability. So they went down there and lied to them. Hey, he had your best interest in heart. This is what we're recommending for everyone, which is not true. They were telling everyone else in the country to buy, 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 except in Marion, o- Marion Ohio. They were telling everyone that your broker did the right thing by selling. So the reason why we got 250 million dollars in punitive damages is because of the fraud, the breach of fiduciary duty, the fact that they intentionally set out to deceive and defraud these retirees in hopes that they wouldn't, you know, catch on. And that was the most egregious part. They always say the the cover up is worse than the crime. This is exactly uh, what happened. But. You know, it took us a long time to, I mean, we're fighting, you know, Wall Street. They, they had the most sophisticated, uh, savvy lawyers, you know, from all over the country with limitless budgets. Uh, you know, and we were just, you know, his long, young lawyer and our team in Columbus, Ohio, just fighting a good fight. Uh, and it, it was a battle. I mean, it was it was the most exhilarating thing that's ever happened in my career. I laughed that, you know, I was afraid I peaked at 30. Uh, but, uh, you know, fortunately, I've had a pretty, pretty good career since then. But... It was remarkable, and the best part about it is that I got to experience that as a young lawyer. There are so many lawyers, even trial lawyers, that that never have just the opportunity to experience like that. So I'm, I'm fortunate that uh, you know that the opportunity came. I was I'm, I was i proud that I I jumped on it and and uh, and you know I had the support of a lot of people, and 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 I'm just proud that my clients believed in me. Uh, they didn't need to do that they could have gone to a lot of other different lawyers uh but they believed in me and and it's uh and we got a great result for them and i've been able to build just a wonderful career and i've been able to help a lot of people uh, over the last twenty-five years, so it's it's just it's really wonderful all around.
0: Very very amazing. I have a few questions, trying trying to fill in a little bit here of what was happening in between, because obviously seven years on a case is is a very very long time, right? And and it sounds like uh, this was a, a very a case that took a lot of resources and time from you. So how how were you able to sustain? operations to keep the lights on, right? When you're working on contingency on a case that it's taking years to, to pay back.
2: So I you brought know. it. I brought in two other lawyers that had experience in this type of, of area of the law. And they, these two gentlemen really became mentors of mine. Um, and they were out of state, but I brought them in. And so really the three of us uh, did this together. So we were able to uh, you know, share the, the commitment of the, of the time. Um, I relied more heavily on them for the resources. It took about a million dollars of out-of-pocket expenses for experts, and I, I didn't have that kind of money. So, uh, you know, we, we worked out an arrangement where you know, the folks that had, that were just more experienced and were older and had more resources, were able to step in. But So there's really three of us, uh, that, and we were able to you know, also be able to work on our other cases uh, and, and just kind of share the work between the three firms and um i mean we were just working incredibly long hours because you're, you're right we had to work that case plus i had to feed my family uh during that time and i was building a, i was trying to build a business I, I was trying to build an investment fraud business while i hadn't i didn't have that verdict yet right it's a lot easier to tell people you're great at something when you've got a 260 yeah, right. million dollar verdict right but i didn't have that you know for many many years so i was also you know, trying to generate enough revenue to to make a living. Now, fortunately, my wife was a a high school teacher. So we lived on her salary uh, for several years. And I'm grateful for that. We're still together after 23 years. Um, And I joke that she didn't intentionally marry a plaintiff's lawyer. I was a tax lawyer when we got married. Uh, (laughs) So that was a bit of a shock. But uh, I think she's overcome that. And she was a big part of my book. She was she edited uh, my book because of her background and expertise. So it was a lot of fun doing that together. But uh, so I did have help uh, trying that case, uh, and uh, you know, a- also focusing on trying to build the niche. Uh, and also a- another thing that helped me with timing, I started my law firm in basically January of two thousand. if you were, you both are pretty young, but in about March of 2000, we had the tech wreck, the market crashed. Yeah. So, uh, I was about six months in or really three months into my practice trying to tell everyone that I was the investment fraud lawyer, that everyone needed to refer all their cases to. And everyone looked at me like who would sue their broker? The market's going up. You're crazy. You're never going to get any cases. You're never going to make any money. And I got a little nervous for a while too, quite frankly. But then when the market crashed, it turned around, I had 200 cases. Um, you know but before I really just when I figured out how to turn my my uh, computer on so i had I was fortunate that I was you know just right into it. I had those cases from the tech rack I mean we had hundreds of cases, and it was just me and uh, my first employee, Adele who's still with me to, after twenty years. I hired her uh, about a week after my son was born, and my son is nineteen so she's been with me for nineteen years and and we really built the business together. We now have fifteen employees and offices throughout the country but we, we started together. And uh, it's, you know, that, that's, that's the story of, of how uh, Meyer Wilson and my predecessor firm, David Meyer and Associates started. And so um,
0: you were three attorneys handling this big case. What happened after that case, you know, went to court, you guys won I uh, you kept the you everyone went back to their own law firm
2: yeah so yeah they we were three different firms and uh, we got together for this case as co counsel and then uh, you know the other the other two lawyers continued to work with the with their firm. so and then I went back to my firm and, and you know we our firm still do a lot of work we kept in touch all these years uh, that really is quite a bond that that holds people together unfortunately one of the three passed away early from skin cancer and that was that was devastating about five or six years ago uh, but. Uh, we were super close. And uh, then we went back to, you know, our our practices. But that case took uh, from 1999 uh, until uh, the end of 2006.
0: Wow. And following up also now, so now we are after, you know, you got this big, massive, record-breaking jury verdict. What happened to your law firm right after that? Where, like, it sounds like you were already easy because you, you didn't really have to wait for the jury breaking verdict to explode. It sounds like already on the early 2000s, you were already getting a lot of traction primarily because of what was happening in the market.
2: Yeah. So I, I really started building and I'm sure I got this advice from somebody because I wouldn't have thought of so myself. So when I started the law firm, I obviously had the big case, but I needed to generate you know, some, and this was sort of the internet was very early. Uh, there weren't, I mean, websites and there was no pay-per-click or Google or any of that. So I really built my law firm through direct mail to who I call trusted advisors. So lawyers, accountants, the good financial advisors. I mean, 95% of the financial advisors out there are honest folks who do good work and they actually want to see the industry cleaned up. So, um, you know, I, I, I would, uh, I, I remember hiring a company to do my first direct mail piece, and um, and I remember the front of it says, "Do you know how often stockbroker stockbroker malpractice occurs?" And on the back it says, "I do," <laughs> and that's a direct <laughs> mail piece I said to lawyers, accountants, financial advisors. Um, and at the time, and and even today, there's not a lot of lawyers that do this, but back then there weren't really any. Um, so uh, and I and I just and I drove around. This was obviously before online continuing education so i did seminars i mean luncheons i drove all over all over the midwest and anyone that would listen to me talk you know during their continuing education i had powerpoints and presentations uh, and i would just talk to lawyers i would talk to accountants i would go to moose lodges and you know uh, whatever i could uh, to talk about and it, it's really the same stuff i talk about in the book it's hey i can help you protect yourself And your clients and your loved ones for becoming a victim of investment fraud, and I can also help you help your clients who, unfortunately, may have become victims of investment fraud by steering them in the right direction. So I can be a value add. So if you're an estate planning lawyer or a tax lawyer uh, or a divorce lawyer, you've got a client who has a problem. If you know me or a lawyer like me to refer them to, then you're a great. You add value. Uh, to your clients and then if you're a lawyer that refers the case to me so long as it's ethical then there, there can be some co-counsel sharing of uh, fees too so there's an opportunity that way also so it's it's really a way to and 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 the book you know highlights this too is it's it's really easy to take some basic steps to help prevent yourself or your loved ones or your clients from ever becoming a victim of investment fraud. And, and I was doing this, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And, you know, that is, I hope an interesting topic. uh, And that got people interested to say, look, I want to, I want to protect myself. I want to protect my loved ones, my, my elderly parents, you know, what can I do? So I never have to see a lawyer like you. And then if I do get a call from a client who may have a problem, what do I look for? What are the red flags? And then, and now I know somebody that can help them. Um, And I've, I've gone on uh, sales visits with financial advisors. Uh, So, you know, financial advisors are allowed to solicit. They're allowed to prospect, you know, lawyers can't really do that one-on-one, nor should we be able to, um, you know, in terms of direct solicitation with phone calls and all that. But financial advisors, they're, I mean, they're out meeting people and they want to, they want to look at account statements. So, they're the ones on the front line, right? They're the ones seeing statements, and if they if they sit down with an elderly couple and they see something and they see some huge losses or some real concerns, and so they'll bring me in, and I'll and so if they want this person to hire them, how about they bring a, a lawyer who can help them? I mean, that's a value add, right? So. This person can help their potential client by bringing in an expert um, and that will help that financial advisor, you know, potentially get the work too. So, and it helps the client. So, and if the client's able to recover money through a, through a case I handle for him, where where does that money go? Well, that money is going to be deposited with the new financial advisor. So the client does well, the new advisor does well. uh, We have additional work. I mean, so there's a way that it can really benefit everyone. And that's how I, that's how I built the business.
0: Your financial advisors are basically the doctors and the auto repair shop uh, owners for the personal injury uh, lawyers, kind
2: of. In what context, I guess? What do you mean?
0: What I'm saying is that the same value that financial advisors add to your practice is similar to what medical experts, doctors do for personal injury lawyers when they identify they get a patient, someone injured.
2: Yes. Correct. Yes. So I did a a podcast yesterday, actually, uh, from a Raymond James advisor. She has a wonderful podcast uh, called... um, From the Vine, I believe, and she's in uh, Maryland. And when she first called me, she says, I'm a little nervous uh, having a guest on my podcast that sues people like me. And, you know, but (laughs) once we talked through it, I said, Look, first of all, I have a lot of friends who are financial advisors. And the reality is, the financial advisors, they want to clean up their. Uh, industry, just like I'd like to get rid of bad lawyers, just mm-hmm. like doctors want to. get. I mean, everyone wants their wants their industry to be cleaner and have a better reputation. And you know, once she, once we talk through that and realize, look, I am actually can be a, a, an advocate uh, for for what you do, and I could be an asset for your business. But if, if, if you see problems, you now know that there's somebody that can help. And I mean, a significant amount of our cases come from somebody's subsequent financial advisor, you know, after the one that, that caused the problems. And, and it's been an incredible network. And I mean, now I openly speak to financial advisor groups. I mean, you know, I've had some rough goings at the beginning when, before I really explain, you know, that I'm not out to get the industry. Yeah. I I'm with them. I want to partner with them to clean up the industry uh, and improve it. That's,
0: that's how the message comes across.
1: Yeah. And they go to the next person, you know what I mean? Like when it comes to things like that, I've always felt the same way where it's, You know, as an example, he uh, Liel does agency work, right? Digital marketing, and you know, we're constantly teaching people what to look for. Whether you hire us or not, you need to look for X, Y, Z, and the only way to do that is to to give the information away for free, right? And and talk to the people that are in the network that are directly dealing with your potential clients.
2: So yeah, I'm a a I'm a big proponent of expanding your, your impact, right? Expand your impact beyond the four walls of your office and exactly what you're talking about. I, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. That's why
1: we're writing a book as well. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Exactly. Um, yep. So I, I know that, and, and I kind of know that this is a no, but how do you feel about the, you know, the, the, the awareness by consumers of, financial fraud. I mean, people are aware of the fraud, right? We all kind of know, especially after that GameStop thing happened and all of that, that went down with, with GameStop and Reddit and et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel like the consumer, him or herself actually understands who they can go to, what fraud is and, and how to identify who's, if that they're being, you know. So,
2: so it's a great, it's a, it's a great question. And most people I mean, the vast majority of people uh, hear stories like this on you know, a television show or the news and say, well, that's really unfortunate for those people, but that would never happen to me. I mean, I hear it all the time. People think, and they're just wrong, quite frankly. They think I'm too smart. I'm too educated. I'm too savvy. Uh, there's no way that's going to happen to me. That only happens to 95-year-old blind widows you know, who, you know, have lost their, you know, cognitive lost their cognitive function. And while they're all, there are all, unfortunately, you know, widows who fall victim to investment fraud. Most of my clients are educated, uh, sophisticated, I mean, I've represented athletes, physicians, CEOs, lawyers. Uh, so people, people need to accept the fact that, that they're not uh, going to be exempted from being victims of investment fraud. They need to realize it could happen to anyone. There are steps you can take. There are pretty simple steps that will reduce your chances. But in the, the the first rule should just be accept be willing to accept the fact that it could happen to you, um, and just don't discount it. That that's going to be that's really unfortunate for other people. But I'm too smart or I'm too savvy or my broker's honest. I don't have one of the bad ones, right? That's what people think. I, I know there's bad people out there, but my broker. Uh, you know, wouldn't do that. That's like saying, and in fact, I had this discussion this morning when uh, and I've got teenage uh, children and I was with some friends having coffee and we talked about, you know, something happened to another teenager. Uh, and we all say, you know, the, the, uh, you think that's not going to happen to my kid. Well, it, ha- it does happen. You know, it, it, everybody's, it happens to a kid who's somebody's kid, right? So when I, you're a victim of investment fraud, you know, that is somebody's family member, that is somebody's brother, sister, father, son. Um, so it, it does happen. It can happen to anybody. Um, and, and it's the, the problem is if you think that it's not going to happen to you, you're, you know, your protection goes down and then, then you're more susceptible to it. So And I tell you, the, these, these schemers, uh, the ones that are, are the most dishonest are unbelievable salespeople. They're charming. They're good looking. They're dressed well. They, they appear to they drive nice cars. They seem like they've got it all. I mean the Bernie Madoff situation, where they're you know they, they seem so successful that they they tell you no ten times because they want to seem so exclusive. I mean this is very sophisticated, um, and there's a lot that uh, these schemers can do to trick you to let your guard down, and that's that's often the biggest problem.
0: David, what you were talking about here, I think we. There may ha- there may be a little bit more of awareness about that r- nowadays, right? So while you're very right that many of us live in denial, thinking like it's not gonna happen us, we are aware that uh, fraudsters can present in ways that you would not think that they're actually illegitimate. I have two questions for you. The first one is how much confidence should one as an investor have in knowing that whomever they're working as their financial advisor is backed by say you, Charles Schwab, or Fidelity, or one of the bigger names, right? Does that mean anything? Is that a guarantee? Because what I'm hearing here is that you've just, you tried a case from an agent Based somewhere in the Midwest, but they, he was part of a of a bigger institution, one of the right biggest firms. So
2: that's a common misconception. Just so you, just so we're clear, all the cases I handle are against big firms that have the money to pay a judgment, right? So we probably get twenty or thirty calls a week. Half those are from folks who just who give money to someone who's unlicensed, you know, a Ponzi scheme, or that, or the. Person who's who took the money is not affiliated with any company. I can't do anything in those cases because there's no entity, there's no financial institution, there's no brokerage firm that would actually there to pay a judgment. So we're talking about situations where there is an advisor, right? They do have a license. They were affiliated with the firm, and it's still a huge problem, right? So make sure that we understand that there's there's all kinds of fraud. Uh, but the cases I handle them I and I've had a thousand cases, uh, you know, we've got six lawyers and we're super busy, uh, unfortunately, doing this kind of work because there's so much of it. Uh, but every but so these are against uh, firm, against agents who work for large firms. But there are a couple things that everyone should keep in mind. Number one, you should never, ever, ever even think about giving your hard earned money to someone who's not licensed. Right. So and, and that sounds simple. But I will tell you, I mean, every day. Every single day, someone calls me. Well, I didn't know they weren't licensed. Or I met them at church. Or, you know, I met them through a trade group. I met him at the club, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so, and there are ways, and we talk about it in the book, but the, the best thing to do, the first step, and if everybody did this before they hired their broker or even for those already working with a broker, if you do even this one thing, you will significantly reduce your chances of ever needing somebody like me. And that's looking up your broker advisor on brokercheck.com. It's a website. It's run by the securities regulators. Uh, It is brokercheck.com, run by FINRA, which is the financial industry regulatory authority. There's the folks that that govern and that regulate brokers. It's also co-run by the state securities regulators. It's a website. It's free. You could do it from your living room, wearing your pajamas, sitting on your couch. You could do it 20 times a day, and it won't cost a penny. Now, it's not 100% accurate, and I'll tell you that in a minute, but you go there, and (laughs) it's super user-friendly. You type in the name of the broker, the brokerage firm, and the city, and your broker, if they're licensed, will come up. And you know, you got to work on the spelling a little bit, and sometimes you got to narrow down the search, but it's very user-friendly. And if the person that you're thinking about investing with is not on there, there's absolutely uh, no reason. I mean, 100% do not ever invest your money with them. And that's the first step. So then you want to make sure they're, they're registered with a brokerage firm. Uh, or an investment advisory firm. And that website will take you to the investment advisory uh, record keeper too. So there's 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 two types of brokers. And I don't want to get super in the detail because the book talks about it, but you need to know whether you're working with a brokerage firm or an investment advisory firm because they're regulated differently. They have different standards and the and the avenue to pursue a claim is different. But that website is the first place to go. But then, and that's only the first step, because to your point, you could be registered with a brokerage firm, but what if that brokerage firm is tiny and it doesn't have any money? Um, I mean, John Doe could be a registered uh, representative with ABC brokerage firm, and I've had a lot of these cases where you, you file the case because there's a brokerage firm, and then the brokerage firm goes out of business. So unpaid arbitration awards uh, is, a, is a significant problem. About 25% of all the cases that go through the entire process to sue a brokerage firm go unpaid. And that's because there are a ton of firms that are too small. They don't have any money. They're undercapitalized. And I talk in the book about some steps you can take to make sure your, the, the firm with which your broker is affiliated you know, has sufficient assets. But let me tell you one more warning because you mentioned sh- companies like Schwab and Fidelity. Those are great companies, um, and they have a lot of sophisticated compliance and supervision. But there's a problem, and we're seeing more and more of this. On the investment advisor side, so not the brokerage firm. So there's a lot of folks who are, are, are registered investment advisors that are affiliated with the brokerage firm. They're regulated either by the state regulator or by the SEC, depending on how much money they manage. They can be independent. They can work for themselves or they could own their own investment advisory firm. But all those folks need a, a, a custodian to hold the money and handle all the paperwork. So Dave Meyer can be an investment advisor. I can get my investment advisor uh, registration, and then I could uh, set up my own shop. I don't need a lot of money. I don't need a lot of excess capital or anything. I can open up a shop and I can market myself as an investment advisor on property license. I can maybe get my CFP. And then I can affiliate with like a Charles Schwab or a Fidelity or a TD and they act as my custodian. Uh, so then when when I bring in clients, I have the clients write checks to Charles Schwab or whoever it is. And then these people will get my clients will get statements from Charles Schwab or Fidelity, and I, I'm not picking on them. I'm just, those are firms that everybody knows. But so the statements that come in the mail, and this is what can be really, really problematic for folks because it, it can be misleading. They'll see Charles Schwab, the statements they recognize, you know, from all the advertising they've seen over the last 50 years. They see Charles Schwab, and it says, your investment advisor is David Meyer. A lot of people believe, and appropriately so often, oftentimes, that Charles Schwab is standing behind that person in all situations because they see Schwab. I get calls all the time. Hi, you know, I'm working with uh, Dave Meyer with Charles Schwab. Well, Dave Meyer in that instance, in our example, works for himself at a small, tiny firm that doesn't have any money and has no insurance. So there, there is very limited liability in most cases when you have a custodial agreement with the investment advisor and Schwab. And the book talks a lot about this. So people need to understand that they need to focus on the size and the credibility and the assets of the actual employee, the firm. Where the, where the investment advisor or the broker works. Because, and you mentioned this right in the beginning of this question, it does matter for whom the person is working, not just the fact they're licensed.
0: David, thank you very much for your, for your answer. Very, very thorough and clear. So I'm now going to shift and look at more recent times where we're seeing a new trend of what could potentially also be fraudulent financial advisory, right? We, earlier this year, Grace mentioned it a, a few minutes ago, GameStop, right? The emergence of these platforms like Robin Hood and such, which are looking at kind of like cutting the middleman, cutting the investor advisors, and giving access through almost kind of like gamified platforms to potential younger investors to come there and make moves on the market and hope to make money out of that. And what's been um, highly criticized is the lack of transparency that exists here in the way that transactions are actually happening and the potential that they actually have. And what I wanna kind of get your opinion on is, where is this going from here? Are we seeing a new type of productivity where, where potentially these uh, new software entities maybe can be held accountable, right? We see conversations about this on Congress
2: happening as well. So, so where I'm, are we? Yeah, I'm very familiar with this. I filed the first nationwide class action against Robinhood in March of 2000 when they had the, they were basically shut down for a few days at, at the beginning of the mm-hmm. pandemic. Um, and I'm very involved in that case. And But let me back up there. This is a huge problem, and now luckily, uh, the SEC has as a new chairman, Gensler, and and the new administration. They are focused, in my opinion, the new SEC uh, with this new administration is focused on the gamification of of stocks and the fact that these companies and and Robinhood is just one of them. It's, there's there's more and more. Yeah. In my opinion, they're basically social media companies, right? They're, they they want to be the Twitter, the Instagram, the Snapchat of stocks. But the problem is, they want they're a tech company. Uh, but they forget that they have the same rules and same obligations of every other brokerage firms. I mean, I've had cases, and and they say, you know, we're not Merrill Lynch. Well, you have the same obligations, the same regulatory requirements as as every other brokerage firm. And I I believe, and I believe it's as a result of our class action that they, the Robin Hood and others like them, have invested heavily on infrastructure uh, and compliance because of because of what happened. They just were not set up for the volume and, and, and really the infrastructure to be able to handle that. I do have a concern and it, this really blew up with the pandemic because, and, and I have a 19 year old son and he was right in the middle of all this game stock stuff. I said, so, do you realize what I do for a living? You want to buy this crap? And here I am literally, <laughs> I sue brokers for a living and you want to get into this stuff. This is nonsense. Um, but so these, these kids that, you know used to you know, they gamble a $1, dollar ten dollars a hundred dollars on, on on sports but there were no sports right nobody had any sports yeah. to gamble on for a year uh and then so everyone turns to Robinhood, and 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 the you know the average account at Robinhood, i mean i think it's public it's it's very very small uh because th- they're just focused on these teenagers you know free trading and all the all the social media tactics used when and what these kids are used to they're getting slammed now with the, with with these investments and now this investment opportunity but you know you can't lose a lot of money on Snapchat. I don't think or Instagram, right? I mean, uh, so you just look at pictures, and you know these kids stare at the phone all the time. But you're not going to lose a lot of money doing that. You might buy a silly gimmick on Facebook, or maybe I've done that once or twice. But, but like <laughs> you're not going to lose you're not going to lose your life savings. Um, so it's it is a real problem uh, because it they're is. marketing toward these young kids, uh, and these kids, in my opinion, don't for the most part don't have the the appreciation. We've all heard this tragic story of this of this young kid who killed himself. Because yeah, you know he 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 thought that uh, he was you know underwater on margin. It turns out that it was just a wrong uh, uh, number that that was given on his statement. I mean, it's unbelievably tragic. So right. there, there there is a lot of regulatory uh, uh, focus on this. I'm about to moderate in about an hour. A uh, town hall with FINRA, which is the securities regulators, uh, and one of the issues we're going to talk about is the gamification of stocks. And I think the regulators are stepping up enforcement, and I think the brokerage firms are responding. Uh, it just it took a while, and there's still a long way to go. But you know, this this uh, commission free trading uh, it's really problematic because it, I mean, I'm thanks for lowering the bar, uh, and I'm glad you're opening up this opportunity, but there are the opportunity is it could be financially devastating for folks i mean to people can go online and and sign whatever paperwork and and put all their life savings and lose it and even if it's a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars i mean it could be your college tuition your student loan money uh your summer job money uh your rent money i mean that's happening and and yeah. when when if you lose five thousand dollars, there's nothing a, like a, a lawyer like me can't do anything, right? Because it costs more than the you know that to, to go through the process. A filing fee is a thousand dollars, right? So you know a lawyer like me can't really help in most of those situations. So that's a process that needs an issue that needs to be fixed uh, in Capitol Hill and through the regulators. And I truly believe, and i I mean I'm an investor advocate. It's what I do. And I truly believe the SEC and FINRA and the state regulators are focused on this. And there's a lot of work to get done. Uh, but I, I caution folks who have teenagers. They need to talk to them. They need to stay on it, uh, because that these Robin Hood and these commission free tradings that are just getting bombarded with with social media and everything. it's it, it is a real problem, and it's causing real, Harm to our young kids.
0: I think uh, we also that wave just you know become kind of like a tsunami like last year, and as you said, it it has created some some really meaningful damage, particularly in in really really uh, young I- individuals. Uh, I believe there was also a case of a, a kid who uh, took all of their parents' uh, retirement savings and invested in them on GameStop and just things that uh, should should not be happening, right, should, should be controlled, there should be some some level of uh, regulation. And so w- we're seeing it in, in, in games, uh, in financial institutions, um, it should be across the board even in in media companies like Facebook, Instagram and such, right? Even though you're saying that you probably cannot really go and lose there your, your life savings, there's still a lot of harm happening, unintended maybe harm happening in those platforms. So regulation with moderation, I think it's actually a, a good thing, not necessarily a bad one. I Agree, David. As we are approaching the end of this conversation, what are three actionable takeaways that anyone listening to this podcast, whether they're attorneys or whether they're investors themselves, can do to better protect themselves or their clients?
2: So the first, which we've touched on, is take five minutes and look up your financial advisor before you invest with them. Uh, and if you're if you have elderly parents, aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers, uh, you know, go there, sit down with them, and uh, actually look up your broker. And if your broker has more than one or two complaints, then I think you should find somebody else. And if they have one complaint, then you know go talk to them about it. And, and unless they are open and honest and forthright and explain whatever the situation was, about 90% of advisors have less than two complaints. So, uh, and now these brokers can go go in that system through a process and get these, some of these cases erased. So it's not, I mentioned earlier, it's not 100% accurate, but it's it's the only profession I'm aware of that allows you to dig in online for free about any prior customer complaints, their testing, whether they filed bankruptcy. So it's a great asset. Uh, and, and I tell you, if half the cases I had would either be much less devastating or not even happened at all if folks would have gone on the front end and looked up their brokers. So do that. And then also, if you have elderly parents, sign on as an additional uh, uh not- notifier on the account so you'll get copies of the statements now you won't have trade authority you know you you don't have to have power of attorney on the accounts but if you have it's like so my mom is is 80 years old I get a copy of her statements in the e- email uh, so I can see what happens so if my mom isn't paying attention or isn't interested or whatever it may be you can get a copy and obviously you need to get authority from the account holder but every elderly person who may be alone or may, be at risk of suffering cognitive clients, should have somebody on the account, whether it's a family member, or a lawyer, or an accountant. Get an extra copy of the of the account statements and and be in the in the lookout for uh, red flags. A lot of trading, a lot of losses, a lot of volatility. Uh, that would be uh, that would be a big help. And a lot of folks don't know that. And then the final point is, don't be ashamed to step up and protect your rights if you actually have suffered losses as a result of what you may may believe may be inappropriate conduct on behalf of your advisor, don't blame yourselves. I believe most of these cases never even get pursued, uh, particularly by the elderly, because they're ashamed. They don't want to admit that they made a mistake. You know, people internalize financial issues. They don't want to talk about it. They're embarrassed. They believe, you know, they're ashamed that they think they trusted the wrong person when, you know, there's just no way to know what somebody might do in the future. Uh, So encourage, you know, whether it's, Anyone in your family or your clients, if you're a trusted advisor, there's no shame in asking for help or for somebody to look and review something that you believe may may be a problem. Thank you very much,
0: David, as a whole, for joining us for this conversation. I think, you know, there could have been at least material here to talk for another couple of hours, but we're going to have to leave it for next time. So we'd love to have you back again. Good luck uh, with the promotion of the book. We're going to be linking out to the Amazon page for where users can uh, buy it. And again, thank you and have a great rest of your day. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Grace, what a great conversation with David, right?
1: That was amazing.
0: I mean, it was was very, yeah. It it was very rich. Sorry. No, I think you, I think both of us want to say so much that we're just kind of like holding ourselves. Grace, I honestly, like, as someone who has retirement savings and has been lucky enough to put some money aside to invest in the market and stuff, you know, these are things that you you don't necessarily think, as David was saying, that it can happen to you, right? And so I think to come up with takeaways here, it's going to be fairly easy because we already got some very good ones. Uh, that there is no way we cannot just go ahead and mentioning them again, right? So, Ray, why don't you go ahead and say the first one, which I think you know telepathically we're going to both agree on it.
1: So that is go to brokercheck.com. That's right.
0: That's I right. Mean, and bookmark that page.
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's free. It's user-friendly and it makes sense to just do it. These are things that you do anyway when you look at, when you go eat, who do you, what do you look at? Reviews. Totally. So, same thing. Just go look and see that this person has a license. I mean, you're not going to hire an attorney without a license. Don't hire a financial advisor without a license. Yeah.
0: Great analogy, Grace. Right. You know, us users spend an average of 14 times reading reviews on what are the best chewing toys for our pets. We can definitely spend 13 minutes of time or even less finding out who's going to deal with our lifetime investment, uh, savings. So definitely takeaway number one, two, and three together.
1: <laughs> well
0: put, yes. All right, great. So takeaway number two, what, what should it be?
1: Um, I I really liked what he said about um, being on your parents, especially if they're elderly or you know somebody that you care about, and being a notifier. Um, obviously, you're not going to have access to to change anything for them, but just being aware of statements and 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 making sure that there's no red flags popping up. I really like that as a second takeaway, um, particularly because you know for me and and I'm you potentially as well in the Latin community, we really kind of help and oversee things when our parents are involved in things um, just to make sure that everything is, is being done the right way. Um, and so I, I really like that second um, item as a, t- as a second takeaway for me and for the listeners. And that's, you know, just, you know, be aware of what's going on um, with your parents, um, especially if they're elderly and um, help them keep an eye Uh, by being one of the ones added as a notified uh, person for the statements.
0: 100%, Grace. uh, buy Buy the book and give it to people that you care about, right? I mean, sometimes that's the best you can do is offer the resources and let them be the ones who discover the potential threats and opportunities that they may have not been acknowledging. So, um, yeah, I agree. There's different ways that you can step in and help. Not everyone wants to have someone come and tell them, do this, do that. But sometimes you just make the resources available from them and you see them actually find uh, solutions to problems that probably they didn't know existed. So very good one, Grace. Which would be our last one?
1: So for me, it's, um, it kind of plays into a lot of our, our takeaways in all of our podcasts. And that's, you know, don't be ashamed in a way to reach out, find information and stand up for yourself. Um, I know it's different in all of our different topics because we talk about different things, but reaching out and, and, and making yourself aware, but also not not feeling like it's your fault if something happened to you. I think that's that's an important takeaway. I want people to to feel empowered by the information. And like you said, Leo, buy the book. You know, and if you see something that's happened in there, um, don't be ashamed to. To say something, you know, to to reach out to someone like, you know, um, Myers law firm. Don't be ashamed to to go onto brokercheck.com and and fire your financial advisor if they have more than a few complaints, like he said. So that's what I mean by don't be ashamed and um taking from his third takeaway. Stand up for your rights and and make yourself aware. Um that's the only way to 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 be able to protect yourself and mitigate risk.
0: Yeah. It was a very uh, good takeaway there. And as as you said, there's really no shame in asking for help. I know it's easier said than done. Uh, different scenarios, different people uh, take that a different way. But I think one thing that uh, we can all, no pun intended here, but take away from this conversation is that um, there are people out there that can potentially be a source for finding a solution to problems that you did you may have been too overwhelmed with and not really know uh, who could potentially help. And so, by by the sound of it, David's office gets uh, you know hundreds of calls, and many of them they can help, many of them they can't. But it sounds like even those that they can't, they still find uh, try to find ways to. Um, set them on the right track. Right. And yeah. so I, I think that's kind of like the, the third takeaway is like, pick up the phone, ask, and you're probably gonna find a direction of where to go by by asking people for help. Very true. Ask for help. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, Grace. Okay. Well, Grace, another great conversation. And so we'll be back next week. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you to David again for this great conversation. And uh, check the episode
1: notes for a link to the book. That's right. We'll see you all next week again. All right. Thank you. Bye.
0: If you like our show, make sure you subscribe, tell your co-workers, leave us a review and send us your questions at ask at podcast.com. We'll see you next week.